I want to welcome everyone. This is the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight, we are going to round out our little series we've been doing on a series of articles by Joe Sims, who is a leader of the CP. The literature that we are going to do tonight was the best things about Marxism, according to Joe Sims. We have General Secretary Conrad Angelo, who will help us provide context and give us the perspective in terms of history that a lot of the young people aren't aware of and need explained. The public announcements by the co-chair of the CPUSA, Joe Sims, which is on their website of political affairs. He said this in 2008 and gave a list. Political affairs was the theoretical magazine of the CP. They no longer produce it. It used to be called the communist in 1920s. Marxism is not a dogma, but a guide to action. Engels. Then why do people get so darn dogmatic? Could it be the ongoing influence of religious thinking and bourgeois ideology in the working class movement? Now that would mean that most dogmatic could be the most bourgeois. One of the things I have found out is the people that are enemies of our ideology always accuse us of being dogmatic. It's interesting. They say we're dogmatic, we believe in dogmatism, and if you look on the Tresaurus, the French one is the Roger Tresaurus, you'll see similar flavor of the word dogmatic. And among it, it's principles. It's a strong belief. And this is what they're accusing us, the Marxist-Leninists of. So the anarchists, the social democrats, the revisionists in the communist movement accuse us of being dogmatic, which means we hold true to our principles. And our principles are the science of Marxism-Leninism. And this is an accusation. Instead of commending us for not giving up our ideology, they attack us for it. And that's the term dogma. It's been used by the bourgeoisie in a very negative term. I want you to know that during the struggle in the Soviet Union, the last year between the Gorbachev people, and by the way, the leadership of the CPUSA supported the Gorbachev people at the time, and those that were opposed, Ligachev, Andreeva, all those people in the Central Committee, they were called dogmatic. And you know what the New York Times called them? Listen to this. New York Times called them, they were conservatives. The liberals, which was Gorbachev, <laughs> they were the good guys, according to the bourgeois New York Times. So you get to see exactly where the ruling class is coming from. And it's a shame that people on the left, leaders of parties on the left, fall into the same category. So I want to get clear the word dogmatism and dogmatic. It is not, for us, a negative word. It is a badge on our chest. We still hold the red flag. We're not going to allow that red flag of Marxism-Leninism to fall to the ground. I don't really understand this logic. It's dogmatic. He's assuming that whatever Marx or what communists are doing is dogmatic. Therefore, it is bourgeois. Is that kind of what he's implying here? I think what he's trying to say is that the most dogmatic in Sim's own words could be the most bourgeois. And I guess he's trying to perhaps hint at a bureaucracy and that, that because the bureaucracy would be so stuck in their way, stuck to their own ideology, that they wouldn't change it for whatever other people or the people in general would be wanting. I don't agree with it, but I think that's what he's trying to hint at is that the most dogmatic would be forming a bureaucracy. But if someone else could explain it better, that would be appreciated. Engels quote, Marxism is not a dogma, but a guide to action. Dogma has always had a positive definition, if you go into the dictionary, but we got Engels trying to say it's not a dogma. That has me confused, just what Engels is saying, never mind Mr. Sims. I have found out personally that just like the quote from Marx, on religion is the opiate of the people. It was taken out of context. 
And I find out the enemies of our ideology take everything out of context when they attack us. Everything. They cherry pick. Well, they take half from here and attribute it to half from here. Now remember, Engels did not have Leninism. Remember that. So he's only talking about, in his day, what he learned from Marx. And he says that Marxism is a guide. Well, of course it's a guide, but it's also much more than a guide. It is a group of principles that we live by. Marxist Leninists every day analyze everything through their science of Marxism, Leninism. So science is much more than a guide. It is much more. That quote was probably taken out of context, the way Joe Sims took a lot of other things, if you notice, out of context. Marxism is an ideology. It's a science. It also acts as a guide, but it is more than a guide. And that's the problem with what Joe is saying, Joe Sims. Related to this dogma thing, I'm struggling with the contrast of on the one hand standing by principles and on the other hand maintaining scientific socialism in our understanding of present social and economic phenomena. So I was wondering if somebody could help me understand when is a particular set of attitudes considered dogma and when is it simply considered good scientific socialism? What we are supposed to be doing with this when we talk about following something dogmatically or in the positive sense of it is that you look through a lens. Like Comrade Angelo was saying, scientific socialism is a guide. And when you have new information, you use that guide. You don't throw the guide away. And so what we're doing is we're taking this guide of scientific socialism and we're seeing the world through this lens and we're seeing the world through all these things. And so if we come up with a new situation, we'd run it through this guide and then we'd get our conclusions from that. We don't just go and say, let's rewrite the whole guide because something new came along. We go, oh, why did that new thing come along? And how does scientific social and how does this guide explain that to us? What do we do when the evidence presented before us contradicts one of our principles? It's great to say that in general. Give us a specific. When I ask people to give a specific that they went to, they can't give me an example. So what they're doing is they're throwing out a general view well, let's say in the future, you know what I mean? And therefore, let's deal with the present because the reality is what we're dealing with now. And up until now, this science that we call Marxism-Leninism has proved very valuable for us. Everything that has been told to us in the past about Marxist-Leninist analysis has been proven to be correct, not incorrect. So we have to look at the past like a scientist. You experiment, and it comes out a certain way. Then that's the assumption that this is the answer to this problem, because we did many experiments on this. We cannot say, well, in the future, if something happened, well, yeah, of course, if that happens, then we have to revise our understanding of something. Remember, the LGBT issue in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was not discussed in the communist movement. And it wasn't discussed because the information that we had up until that time was at a certain point. Climate change, we didn't have the information we have now that we had 40 or 50 years ago when we were doing industrialization in the Soviet Union and Lake Baikal, the biggest natural lake, deepest lake, had pollution problems from Soviet industrialization. So let's talk about what has happened before us and now, not about the future. Funny, he says that, could it be the ongoing influence of religious thinking and bourgeois ideology in the working class movement? This is an idea that Joe Sims says. There's no evidence that this is what it is. It's just his idea, this is idealism right here. Then he just draws a conclusion that the most dogmatic people are actually bourgeois out of this idealist thought that he has here. In reality, Angelo has summed up pretty well the strategy of the word dogmatism as it's used in regards to Marxist-Leninists. But in reality, as long as you're following the science of Marxism-Leninism, 
dialectical materialism, historical materialism, we're not looking at it dogmatically. There are some things that are constant that don't change. And those people try and pretend it's a dogma because there are certain things that haven't changed in these past 100, 150 years. That's not dogma. That's just the fact that these certain constants have stayed constant, you know, long period. I suppose that you could be dogmatic in tactics, and that makes sense for some, because you could go with trying something that's been shown not to work and keep trying that over and over again. But I don't understand if your ideology is purely communist, how you could even say that if someone's dogmatic, they're the most bourgeois, because it just doesn't make sense. If you're a communist, you're obviously not bourgeois. So I just don't understand his line of thinking. I find the statement, could it be the ongoing influence of religious thinking and bourgeois ideology in the working class ironic? It's a very ironic statement. And the reason it's ironic is because Marxism, Leninism, these people who complain about it being dogmatic, they're the type of people who want to embrace more bourgeois style ideology. That definition gave me pause and the light switch went off in my head because when people say dogmatic, I've always thought it was an excuse for principles. Really, if the people who are dogmatic or quote dogmatic are often the most principled. And so I feel like the demonization of the word and the demonization of the idea of what it is to be dogmatic is just an example of how neoliberalism infects even Marxist-Leninist circles. That definition really made me look at it in a different way. It reminds me of the Sada Shakur quote about how the first thing they'll do to revolutionaries is paint you out to be the bad guy, as if being principled is a bad thing. When I joined the party about a year ago, I remember something Angelo told me, that you can't just take some quote from a text and then automatically apply it dogmatically. You can't do that dogmatically. I was just wondering if he could elaborate a little more on the type of dogmatism we should avoid, like hoshism. I've heard that being described as hyper-dogmatic. Whenever you accept something on belief, in my opinion, when you accept it on belief and you don't do any research to follow it up to see if it's correct. So because a leader says something, whether in a church or in a group or a party, if a leader says something and you say, well, it must be right because the leader said it. that to me is dogmatism without doing any kind of scientific research on your own. Remember the famous words of Karl Marx, the first and foremost comrade of everybody here. Question everything. That's not from the bourgeoisie. That's from Karl Marx. Question everything. And how many times have people heard me say just because I say something, don't take it at face value. Do some research your own. I could be wrong. I could have misunderstood the question. So do research on your own. So dogmatism means you follow something blindly. But by following a group of principles, you're not being dogmatic. You're being principled. That's the difference. I hope that explains the big difference. The next topic needs a bit of an introduction before we go into it. It's called Bill of Rights Socialism. So Carmen Angelo, if you could give a background as to what that is and why it's important. Bill of Rights Socialism is a term that was used by the CPUSA in the early, early, early 80s. It was given more predominance after 1991 when the counter-revolution in Soviet Union succeeded and the capitalists came back to power. Then it became a big thing here. It's a form of American exceptionalism. We should know what that is. It's a form of saying that every country, socialism is gonna be different. And that's dangerous, comrades. Don't listen to anyone who says that. Think about that. That takes away the spotlight on the science of Marxism-Leninism as being appropriate for every place on the planet. And instead, it puts the magnifying glass, if you can picture this idea, it puts a magnifying glass on one of the things Lenin said, and that is the characteristics have to be taken into consideration of a society. But the people who are opposed to central planning, who are opposed to a model of socialism, 
who are opposed to everything we stood for over 110 years for what socialism meant. Now they're redefining socialism. They're changing it. All of a sudden, we have socialism with Chinese characteristics. All of a sudden, we have socialism that's different in the DPRK than is different in the Soviet Union. I'm not saying it is, but there are proponents of people who say that. So it all came from originally Khrushchev at the 20th Party Congress, when he not only attacked Stalin, but attacked the mode of production and the model that was in the Soviet economic system. That was first attacked by Khrushchev. And then it got worse and worse and worse. China in the 60s picked it up, in my opinion, picked it up as the result was taking the old common turn idea and changing it, that now we don't need a center anymore. And I see that mentality still in even members of our party, that they believe there's no need for a center, there's no need for us to work on the same page, that communism and building socialism is going to be different in every society. Then we just might as well take the book that Marx gave us and Lenin gave us and throw it away then. So that's what this idea of socialism with the Bill of Rights It's taking a correct kernel of truth and over-exaggerating it. Our country is one of the few countries in the world, maybe the only one, that has a Bill of Rights. The next thing is closest is England that has the Magna Carta. And in France, I think they call it the Rights of Man or something similar to that. So to say that Bill of Rights socialism means social is going to be different here. And when you read the book that came out of the party on Bill of Rights socialism, you see They're not talking about centralized planning. You see, what they're really talking about is elevating the middle class to a level of society where the working class will no more be predominant, but that society will be divided between the middle class and the role of the middle class and the working class. And that's what Bill of Rights Socialism is. Could you give a brief connection as to how it's related to Gus Hall, and then we can go into the reading? Yes. Gus Hall... In 1980s, when we first talked about Bill of Rights Socialism, he was also talking about the popular front period under Browder in this country. In other words, relate socialism so that the average day people could understand it by relating it to our history. But by the early 90s, after the counter-revolution succeeded, it took on a different connotation. Bill of Rights Socialism basically became a weapon to be used against what we believed for 110 years, against centralized planning, against the dictatorship of the proletariat. It was now stated that socialism is going to be built. We're going to have multiple political parties. Some of them are going to be pushing socialism. Some are pushing capitalism. That should be allowed, which means basically that we won't have a situation where the working class would be ruling predominantly. It will be the end of what Marx called the dictatorship of the proletarian. Comrade, read the little blurb, and then we can start having questions raised on this topic. Bill of Rights Socialism, formulated by Gus Hall and the Communist Party leadership in the 1980s. Perfect. Speaks for itself. Will remain a scientific foundation of U.S. socialism for at least 100 years. Having taught Bill of Rights to high schoolers, while there are indeed some good areas in the Bill of Rights, we also need to remember that a good chunk of the Bill of Rights is concerned with maintaining private property rights and maintaining the rights and holdings of individuals against the state. So if, let's say, a party calling itself communist gets the power and says, all right, we're going to nationalize this industry. Oh, look at that. The courts are going to strike it down because oh, it violates this amendment, it violates that one. So this is the whole point of like Bill of Rights. It's a bourgeois invention during a bourgeois revolution. You can learn from it, but if we're trying to replace it, we have to actually replace it. I find it very interesting, the use of Bill of Rights. I know that Angela was talking about American exceptionalism, I believe, and how Bill of Rights socialism is American exceptionalism but under a red flag. The idea of the Bill of Rights 
he's very American. There's nothing socialist about the Bill of Rights. That's the thing. How can you call something socialism when it isn't even socialism? They're even socialist in nature. What Angela was saying about various socialisms with yada yada characteristics, the principles of Marxism Leninism doesn't change based on your country, just as any other science doesn't change just because of your country. The principles of physics do not change because you're in Costa Rica. The principles of engineering do not change because you're in Morocco. The principles of Marx Leninism do not change because we're in the United States. Comrade Angelo, can you tell us more about the circumstances behind why Joe Sims is saying that Gus formulated the Bill of Rights Socialism? Very good question. And uh, this is very, it's going to shock people. We think that the Central Committee or the Politburo of the Communist Party, now the CP doesn't call it Politburo. As early as in the 20s, they changed the name, right? They wanted to be Americanized. So the Central Committee, they call the National Committee. All right. The Politburo, that was too foreign. Remember, every country in Europe calls it a Politburo. Spain, France, Portugal. You don't hear them complaining, right? But over here in this country, from the very beginning, they didn't call it a Politburo. I think they call it the Executive Committee or something like that, or the National Council, one of these terms. I found out by having a discussion with Gus in an elevator over the issue of Maoism, that the Central Committee is not all the same voice. They go by democratic centralism. So if they come to a position and the general secretary is in the minority, whoever the general secretary is, has to carry through what the decision is of the majority. And that's what democratic centralism is. So what you have is he, for example, was in the minority on the issue of perestroika, okay? He opposed perestroika. The rest of the Politburo or the National Committee, like Angela Davis, James Jackson, I know those two, Herbert Aptheker, they supported Gorbachev and perestroika. So Gus had to toe the line for democratic centralism, but he got his two cents in by sending around tapes to all the clubs, cassette tapes, Cassette tapes gave Gus's view of things. And he was very critical of what he called the excesses of Glasnost and the excesses of Perestroika. That's when the real Gus came in. So when the Bill of Rights came out, that was probably not his view. It was probably the collective view of the leadership. And he had to go along with the collective view. And also remember, by 1992, his health was very bad. And he was carried around by people. A lot of the writing, we think, was done by others. To me, the Bill of Rights socialism doesn't make sense. Shouldn't we, through Marxist-Leninist view, formulate theory about the American struggle? We don't struggle the same way as Bolivia struggles. The Bill of Rights is going to have a place in our movement. It has to. It's part of our history. But to say that it's going to make us very different from socialism in any other country is the question. That's the question. As one comrade said, whether we're in Guatemala or in China or in the United States, blue is still blue. You're not going to change it. It doesn't change. So therefore, to put so much stress that we're going to call it socialism with American characteristics, that's what we're talking about is missing the whole point of what dictatorship or the proletariat is, what it means. It means that the working class rules the country and the bourgeoisie have everything expropriated. They're not allowed to exist. It's expropriated. Another reason why this idea of having socialism with different characteristics based on the country you're in is a very ignorant idea, is that the only thing that really separates us as members of the working class is just the country that we come from. We're all members of the international proletariat. The song is called The International for a reason. And so 
to say that we're going to do socialism, but do it in our way is backstabbing the proletariat in all of the other countries as well. Every country is going to have socialism the same way. And we need to follow Marx's and Lenin's leads on this and not try to do something weird and different. When somebody says that something speaks for itself and that there's no need for further explanation, that's a pretty surefire <laughs> sign that they're full of shit, they're lying, because nothing speaks for itself. Angelo's explanation wasn't even any full explanation, I'm sure, of all the specifics of it, and that still was several minutes. It's ridiculous. What in the hell does Bill of Rights Socialism even mean? Does it mean socialism with a Bill of Rights or something? And there's really no real basis. It's just a vague definition, a good-sounding mishmash of words. That's correct. That's basically what it was. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't go into it. He just dismisses it as a positive thing, according it's to his mind. Nice. Sounds like the old party is social democracy at this point. Yeah, it has been reiterated in previous classes. And on Tuesday class, we had a comrade who was in the CPUSA recently, and they very much shared that sentiment. So even though this is an article from 2008, in the run-up to a presidential election, nonetheless, this was in August 2008, to see the progression or lack thereof between 2008 and what we have in the CPUSA in the year 2021. And the whole reason as to why this party exists and why we're doing what we're doing now. It's really cool to show the differences the CPUSA has from us. Just because someone has a bill of rights or has protections doesn't mean that they always do it. In this country, for example, we have the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That doesn't mean we get it. It's just a thing that's there. It's one thing to always attack someone, to say, oh, everything they say is bad. This person is wrong. We're going to laugh at them and things of that nature. But that's not what's going on here. My understanding of the communist movement, really, for the last hundred years is this has basically been our history of groups and parties constantly going to the left or to the right. There's always been concurrent parties running in the same country. It's even worse now, now that there's no Soviet Union. In Spain, for example, there's like at least three official parties. But we shouldn't just beat a dead horse. Oh, this person, everything they do is wrong. Actions speak louder than words. And so you have to look at what was going on in the CPUSA, because I was in it. They got rid of the Youth League. They got rid of the party. They closed everything down. And I think it's not here, but he actually campaigned for the Democratic Party. And the problem is, is, this is what was pushed upon us. You come in as a young person. This is what you're given. The reason why I think this article we should study, this is from 2008. But up until now, the only reason they've changed is because our party exists. But as we saw just a week ago, there was a thing in China. And we're talking about, this is my other point, with the social democratic movement. That's what basically the solid net is at this point. Within it, there's a poll of Marxism-Leninist parties led by the KKE, basically, which we're aligned with. And then there's this social democratic group. And just last week, there was this China Marxist synopsium, basically against Marxism-Leninism, where the social democratic parties put themselves into a new division of the world along two poles, one with the United States and that capitalism, and the other with China and their capitalism. And then within these two polls, there exists our Marxist-Leninist poll. Something I've noticed Joseph's doing is taking things that may be used for optics. Like Angelo said, Gus Hall used the term Bill of Rights Socialism more to call back to like a variety of folk for like an optics appeal. But he'll use it and actually take things that are being used that way to push the party more and more towards liberalism or maybe social democracy or away from the actual communist line. And that's something I think that we have to watch for when people talk about changing things up for optic reasons, is making sure that you don't then allow it to weaken your actual ideology or true strength of what the party's trying to accomplish just because you're trying to reach a broader audience with the term. Regarding the idea about how there's no center for anything, which is obviously we all can agree is a big, humongous reason of why things got worse leading up to the dismantling of the Soviet Union, but trying to get the movement off the ground has there been any push 
with or without the Soviet Union being a thing anymore to try to get an actual, the way that the common turn meetings were that took place in person at a central location, has that ever been tried to be pushed further than what we're already doing in order to get this movement off the ground more? We've always had it. Let me tell you the history. Before the common turn, which is the third international, remember that's what it's called. The first international was led by Marx and Engels. It was called mm-hmm. the Workingmen's Association. That was the first international. The second mm-hmm. international was called the second international. It was composed of socialist parties. There were no communist parties during the years of the second international. So we've always had a history of getting together people on the left, specifically followers of Marx, to get together and work together, not just analyze, but we always said, look at the world today. You have the G7. They're organized. The G7 is organized. That's the top capitalists on the planet. What we said is that the working class has to be organized also to fight the capitalists. And it took place in Moscow because that was where the revolution succeeded. So it was centered around Moscow. If there was no Moscow, there was a need for that somewhere else. That was obvious because the capitalists are organized and we have to fight them on organized level. To answer your question, yes, there are people around the Greek party, the Greek Communist Party, who were mm-hmm. talking about the need for a new center based on mm-hmm. Marxism-Leninism, because yeah. right now we have something called SolidNet, S-O-L-I-D-N-E-T. And SolidNet mm-hmm. is what we're using now, but it's not like the common turn. We have groups of differing ideological views in SolidNet. Mm-hmm. What we need is to have people of the same view in one international center. This idea that you identify a unique aspect about a country and all of a sudden this unique aspect supersedes core basic principles of Marxism-Leninism. When Marx formulated what we have come to call Marxism and when Lenin formulated what we call Leninism, this wasn't engineered towards a specific country. If you are in a different country, the sky is still blue. If you're in a different country, animals still lay eggs. The same natural processes occur. So if we're understanding Marxism-Leninism as a science and as analyzing and applying dialectical and historical materialism, why would we go to individual countries and go, this individual aspect of whatever country supersedes this fact of science? The class struggle is the class struggle. And there's only two ways to deal with the class struggle, the Marxist-Leninist way or the social democratic way. And we went through the social democratic, which is basically the ballot box. And we saw in Chile, we saw in many places, even in our own country, that when you use just the ballot box without going into the street and using the street action, if you just take one road, you're working one hand behind your back in the struggle. You need your two hands in order to fight capitalism. The old slogan by Malcolm X, by any means necessary, that should be a slogan that we should be talking about. By any means necessary. The only difference is that Lenin would say terrorism is not one of those means. Lenin would add to that. It's not one of those means. But neither should we just deal with the ballot box or with the street actions. We need both. I've always noticed a connection between human rights and the divine rights of kings and seeing that it's the divine rights of kings for capitalist states and liberals. And if there's, and I like to ask you if there's any connections between that and this build of rights socialism. My gut instinct would be no. Divine right of kings inherently was more the idea that you have a divinity and by nature of who they are as a person, they have some sort of religious affiliation that makes them endowed to own this piece of land, to control this population, to have heirs to a throne or whatever it is. So divine right of kings, in my estimation, is not related to Bill of Rights socialism. I mean it as how liberals treat human rights. I think you're talking about idealism and liberal understanding of universal human values. It's very much something that Gorbachev talked about. And I think that is a correct analysis. I didn't really understand what you were talking about. But yes, in terms of the idea that universal human rights, if everyone in the country can't vote somehow, It's not even possible for it to be democratic. There's no world in which 
the entire population can't vote where that's not democratic. So that's what they do. They supersede these values. Oh, does a country have this, 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 and this in terms of what I value more or in terms of what ideally would like in a country? That's how they analyze it. On the Bill of Rights, Joe Sims mentioned it in his speech in Beijing just last year. So even though we're looking at 208, I want you to know the Bill of Rights, as far as CPUSA is concerned, is still alive and well. Comrade, if you could read the next one. If I can't dance, I don't want to join your revolution. Emma Goldman. Okay, she was an anarchist, but if I can quote Bob Marley, I sure as hell can quote Emma G, one of my favorites. It's very funny to see how Joe Sims is giving ground to the more bourgeois strands of leftism, uh, the workers' movement, i.e. the anarchist movement, which in America is very bourgeois in nature and is based on a lot of the bourgeois ideas of vague liberty. I believe what he's saying is that Emma Goldman is one of his favorites, which is very funny. Yeah. It's ridiculous. I see comments like this from so-called communists all the time. And all I could wonder is, they don't have to be communists. They can do something else. They can be capitalists. Why don't they go make money or something? They don't like communism. That's okay. They can do something else if they want to promote these other ideologies. An anarchist is my favorite. I mean, nothing's stopping the Sims guy from doing something else with his life. Emma Goldman was friends with Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist, as we all know. And Sanger was also funded by the Rockefellers. She was a liberal, and she spoke with the Ku Klux Klan. Did we also forget the fact that she said that she wanted to eliminate the Black population? So, of course, we shouldn't judge people by their friends, but that definitely does say something about a person. In my own case, I was a Marxist-Leninist on my own and was trying to find an organization that I could fit in with, and the CPUSA seemed to be it for me. So I joined the CPUSA, and I've become very active in it, but I've become kind of disillusioned because I've helped recruit a lot of people that they don't contact, and they preach a lot of stuff that is anti-Marxist. They're neolibs, I guess, tied into it, and I'm very happy to be in this discussion. This feels like a better fit for me. I know through being in the CPUSA since 2019 that there are a lot of true Marxist-Leninists in the organization that simply have not heard of this part. So the point what I would make up is for someone in my case, when they were looking for an organization, why was it easier to stumble across the CPUSA as opposed to the Party of Kindness USA? Because I think that's going to be priority one to figure out how to be the first piece of information, the first organization that we stumble across. Because had I had the choice in the beginning, I would have never went to the CPUSA. We welcome open palms people who are Marxist-Leninists from the old party because we carry on the traditions of what they were. Remember, people ask me the difference. We are what they were. They're no longer that anymore. That's the problem. So we have to be a place, open arms to all those people in this country who still believe that what the Soviets did in 1917, what the Chinese did in 1949, what the Cubans did in 1959, and what the Vietnamese did in 1975, that that's still valid, that that is our goal here. And there are people in this country who want to join that kind of thing. We're not here to convince anyone else. We're here to be a haven, a safe place for all those people who know the story and what needs to be done. And we know that if it wasn't for Lenin and what happened in 1917, the countries in Africa would still be colonies. Let's be honest. They would still be colonies of white European countries. 
So it was the Soviets who helped them in the National Liberation Movement of the 60s. South Africa would still be an apartheid country if it wasn't for the Soviet Union. Those who are trying to bury the history of the Soviet Union, including the leadership of the CP. In response to the comrade who was asking, why was it easier for them to find CP rather than the PC? Two reasons that I think come to my mind is, well, one, we're a newer party, and also that our ideology is more threatening because you can mm -hmm. see that they're watering it down more. It's really jarring, and I want to repeat that this is just a really bad iteration of polymarxism for those who don't know what polymarxism is. It's basically a pick-and-choose-your-own Marxism ideology. These bits are good, and then discard the other ones. Anarchism, it's been said that it's a petty bourgeois ideology that has no connection to the masses, and it does not exist to be connected to the masses. It relies on terrorist attacks, adventurism, and its whole motto is everything for the individual. Joe should know better, and I say should, but it's quite apparent that's not the case. Putting in a quote who is really an enemy of Marxism is just disgraceful. Anarchists, they see themselves as leftists, but they're actually right-wingers because they preach individualism, which capitalism also preaches individualism. So they're helping capitalism through their ideology, and it is petty bourgeois ideology. Joe Sims sounds more like he's writing a novel, kind of, than an actual work of theory. We talked about this in the past handful of weeks, the idea that somehow analyzing Marxism through the medium of a BuzzFeed article or through the medium of some sort of individualized top 10 is probably one of the least dialectical ways you could go about analyzing something like that. That's not actually the original quote. That's a paraphrase of it. I'm going to read a real quick snippet from the original quote. It's like at the last part, and it really highlights what she's really trying to get across, and it makes it way worse. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Anarchism meant that to me, and I would live it in spite of the whole world, prisons, persecution, everything. Yes, even in spite of combination of my own comrades, I would live my beautiful ideal. So to get across what is being said in the original quote, let alone the paraphrase, it's an incredibly hyper-individualist and literally an idealist notion. So we should recognize that if this is a quote that we're supposed to respect and relate to, I think this has some major connotations for what kind of a communist would relate to this. I'm just curious about what no unemployment looks like. I know there are some people who are unable to work. I'm glad you asked that question. That was the question that I was asked of me when I lived in the Soviet Union. The young married Russians came up to me and they said to me, what do you mean you don't have a job? They looking at me like I was nuts. Everybody has to have a job. They were brought up under the Soviet system. Everybody had a job. In their mind, it's impossible to comprehend how anybody could not have a job. So that got me thinking. I explained to them, I took my hands in my pocket. I don't know if you've ever seen this, and I emptied my pockets out. Ever see that? Somebody emptying out their pockets. I said, this is America today. They didn't understand that. It made no sense to them. What do you mean? You don't have a job. You don't have any money. It didn't make sense. It was like I was talking to people from another planet. It was the strangest experience. So your question is similar, but on the other side of the coin. What do you mean everybody has to have a job? <laughs> exactly. Everybody worked. Everybody had a job. Now, if people were disabled, they were taken care of by the state. But not the average person is disabled. The average person is able to physically work or mentally work. So to answer your question, yes, you have a society where everyone is employed in one way or the other through mental or physical attributes. And it's basically a workers and farmers state. It really does.
I know that in historically socialist countries, disabled people have worked more than they do in capitalist countries because they allow for a more healthy environment for the disabled workers and, and take their needs into more consideration than we do here. We had we used to have some facilities here in America under FDR that did similar things, but they've been closed and stuff. How does the general secretary gauge the position of the rest of the party? Is it through democratic centralism? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. If the party democratically discusses something and comes to a decision, that has to be the decision of everybody in the party and all the leaders, including Joe Sims or Gus Hall or whoever it is. That has to be. But Sam Webb, remember that name, who took over, I would say in 2001, he took over for a few years. He tried to send out stuff under his own name, and he said he was speaking for himself. That was the first big revisionist action that he did. That's not the way it works. And so he had the party pay for the printing of a position booklet that he put out without the party's approval. This is what was starting to go on in the beginning. There was all hell breaking loose. No more discipline, no more centralism doesn't exist in history. United Front Policy, attributed to Georgi Dimitrov, announced at the 7th Congress of the Comintern. The concept is Lenin's. Gramsci believed Lenin thought it to be of strategic significance and the only possible road to socialism in developed capitalist countries with more entrenched democracies and diverse forms of civil society, associations, clubs, unions, etc. Gramsci used that weird word, hegemony, to develop forms of this idea. He must have been drinking Kool-Aid or he was on the weed. Because to make a statement like this, for a person who's been in the communist movement for decades, is insane. The concept is not of Lenin. Lenin's contribution to the communist movement was the idea of imperialism the highest stage of capitalism. That was his concept. Lenin never talked about fascism. Never. Doesn't even allude to it. So now this guy, who's a former actor, if everybody should know, Joe Sims is a former actor. Ronald Reagan was a grade B. This guy was C. He was even lower than Ronnie. But to say that 1937, the common turn, well, let's be realistic. What happened in 37 in Europe? Were they talking about revolution to socialism or were they talking about stopping fascism? That's the difference. So he confuses, like everything else he does in life, he confuses fighting fascism and going for socialism. That's what he does. The Seventh Congress had nothing to do with socialism. Zero. It had to do with stopping fascism. That was it. This idea where he attacks Gramsci, even attacks Gramsci. He'll attack anybody, anybody that's a Marxist-Leninist. So now he puts his guns on Gramsci. And he says, Gramsci, I'm going to show you what, you what you are. Gramsci died in prison, in a fascist prison. And this piece of work, Joe Sims, is trying to denigrate Gramsci. He says, I'm sorry, but the issue of hegemony, he even brings up the word. So he shows that he read one word in the prison notebooks of Gramsci. That's the only word he remembers, hegemony. He said, I'm sorry, the people who follow Gramsci, but I got to tell you, hegemony is not the answer. And what is hegemony? Hegemony simply means, the definition of it, it means very simple, that whatever class that's in power, their view of the world is going to predominate, whether in culture, whether in religion, whether in movies, it's going to be their view that's going to be predominant because they control everything as far as the movie industry and the radio shows, etc. So what Gramsci was saying is we have to put the working class in a position to have their hegemony over the capitalists. And Joe Sims is opposed to that. He makes it very clear. He says, I'm not interested in that either. Well, Joe, Ellen DeGeneres is retiring. I'll give you a job on her show so you shut your goddamn mouth about ideology because that's all he is. You have to understand, 
when I was in the party, Joe Sims was not even in the top leadership. He was the guy who dusted off the office at the end of the day and put everything in order and then went home. That's all he was. He wasn't a theoretician, nothing. So for them to put this guy in the number one slot, the number one slot, it's telling me that they have nobody to use. They're scrapping the actual bottom of that barrel because there's nobody else who's willing or able or willing to take on the top slot. That's what it tells me. I gave you the story of Gus Hall and he opposed Perestroika, but the party supported Perestroika. So therefore Gus Hall supported Perestroika because democratic centralism states that whatever the majority position is in the leadership, that's what they go with. So it's impossible to do what Sam Webb did and that is, he wrote a whole essay. I guess it was after 2000. He wrote a whole essay and he said, this is my position, not necessarily the position of the party. And then the party paid to have that printed up in hundreds and hundreds and thousands. That was the beginning of someone raising their eyebrow and say, what is this? The general secretary of the Greek party cannot speak for himself. He has to speak for the Central Committee and the Politburo of his party. That's the facts of it. So the answer, comrades, is definitely no, it's not possible. And if it is happening, then there's something wrong. Something wrong with this picture. Have you ever heard the term, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing? You ever heard that before? Well, this is a good example. Joe read someplace that Dimitrov was involved in something called the United Front. So then he goes on to say, the United Front is the way to go for socialism. If you read the United Front and you know what it's about, it has nothing, zero, to do with the way to go for socialism, zero. The United Front is a policy where all the workers' parties get together and fight fascism. That's all the United Front was about, to you fight fascism. Joe Sims takes that and twists it around because he never read Dimitrov. I know he never read it because they don't read it in the old party. They're starting to read it now. You know why? The last election, their line was that we have to do what Dimitrov did, have a united front against fascism. And guess who the fascist is? Trump. Trump was a fascist. And so then what they do is they take a little kernel, a kernel, in a big carb of corn. They take one of the kernels and they blow that up into a whole thing of the carb of corn. The fascist tendencies that were expressed, and they were, the January 6th thing was an example of that. The fascist tendencies that are expressed by Trump and the people around him is not the same as what we experienced with Hitler taking over Europe and therefore we needed a united front. So therefore, it's not the same thing at all. And then he brings Gramsci into it, into this quote, and he throws a crumb to him by using the word hegemony. He doesn't even know what hegemony is because he never read Gramsci. Everything he talks about, he never read. It's unfortunate. Remember what he was his whole life. He was an actor, like Ronald Reagan, an actor. Also, another bit of clarification on the United Front. The United Front is not fundamentally a concept of Dimitrov's either, because Marx put it forward first. Marx also fought with people who would not engage in fighting for the immediate needs of the workers. And the United Front is the struggle for the immediate goals for the workers, which can include parliamentary action. Dimitrov put forward the Popular Front. And the Popular Front is an alliance with progressive and social democratic parties against fascism, but it's built upon the United Front, which has been a longtime strategy and tactic of the Communist Party to ensure the working class is dominant in the alliance. But Dimitrov, in his work, The United Front Struggle Against Fascism, he put forward the Popular Front because the Popular Front is an alliance with progressive and social democrat parties against fascism, like Angelo had mentioned. 
but it's built upon the united front to ensure the working class is dominant in the alliance i also found this a very interesting idea that joe sims is bringing up considering that this comes from 2008 if i'm not mistaken and if you remember back in the political moment that was 2008 there wasn't really any even hint of any kind of fascist or even neo-confederates they were a few grumpy people around but that was about it this is before the tea party that he's talking about we need to build this united front with the democrats for what to stop mccain winning i mean it's not that much different than what we ended up with so you're trying to build an anti-fascist resistance, in theory, against one that's not really there at the moment. Why would you align yourself with a neoliberal party that has done nothing but to help the rise of fascism? We all know that fascism is the psychosis of liberalism. If anything, the Democrats have just helped provide more fire for these fascistic elements in germany during the weimar republic it was basically a liberal republic it was the beginning of a liberal republic that was headed by the social democrats which is equivalent to our liberals remember they paved the way the social democrats paved the way they actually put flowers down on the ground for the nazis to come in that's what they did they paved the way for them and how did they do that They were responsible for killing the only group in Germany that was going to fight the fascists. And that was the Communist Party of Germany, which was called the Spartacist League. Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht. They were killed under Ebert, who was the social democratic leader in Germany, and Schneiderman. Ebert and Schneiderman. And they have the Freikorps, which was the right wing, killed them. And you know what the social democratic government did? Nothing. Zero. That's why we use the term social fascist. That's why we use that term. And I think it's a correct term. The 23rd Street people under Sam Webb, the CP, hated that term. They hated that term. And now you know why. Because they were the new liberals in the communist movement. They were the most liberal. For as long as I've been alive, CPUSA was a pro-Soviet party. And it was always in the Soviet camp. Sixties, there were parties that followed China. They didn't agree with the Soviets. They followed China. And there were people that said that China had the more correct way of doing things. But the leader of the CPUSA was always pro-Soviet. And the party was always pro-Soviet. When I get to be an adult and perestroika happens, and as Angelo said, it was a deliberate thing, our party changes, the CPUSA changed and became anti-Soviet, exactly the opposite. So if you want to remain in that party, what it would mean is that you would have to be anti-Soviet in your ideological view. You could not be pro-Soviet and stay in that party. And that is exactly the opposite of my view. So my whole life, I'm brought up with the view, a pro-Soviet view, which as at the same time is not anti-China, but pro-socialist and pro-communist. And then when I get to be an adult, I have to take the view that my party is anti-communist. And I got to say that it's quite a shock. It's not possible to have that view in the party that I spent my lifetime in. I can't believe it. I think what Angela is trying to say is that it's not possible for a person who is a leader of a party to have views that are ideologically different from the majority of the party. Again, this is from 2008, and we just heard Comrade talking about how He's having the same experiences in 2021. So we like to think that, oh, it's been a decade. It's been 13 years. They've completely renounced this shift towards social democracy. They've completely distanced themselves from people like Sam Webb and Joe Sims. And unfortunately, to some extent, we wish that wouldn't be the case. So 
<laughs> you could be building the CP as an actual Marxist-Leninist party, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And comments from comrade who has been in the CP and our comrades who have been in the CP is very important. About whether it would be possible for a leader in the party to lead properly if he had an opposing ideology or a different ideology. And I know exactly what she's saying because I had the same kind of feeling and I thought a lot about it. But yes, even if the person has a different ideology but does not act on it, the fact that they have a different ideology at all is going to basically subconsciously reflect how they manage the party, how they react to issues that come up in the party. So I say no, it is not possible to have a leader of a communist party with a different viewpoint or a different ideology. It just doesn't make sense. It may not be apparent right away. The effects may not be apparent, but they will be. In two weeks, we have a very important anniversary going. 80 years ago was the invasion of the USSR by the Nazi armies of two and a half million soldiers. That's going to be a big event in Russia, of course, and should be a big event for us to talk about. Another terrible thing, if you go on their website, they have merchandise, and on one of their merchandise, one of the slogans is a little to the left. It's bad enough that they pretty much become a social democratic party, but what they're sounding is like a New Deal liberal in this case. It really says something about Joe Sims and also boils my blood whenever I see people spreading this misinformation of like, oh, this is illegal under socialism. Oh, you can't do this under socialism. Oh, this is forbidden under socialism. When their only source is either trust me, bro, or someone else whose source is trust me, bro. And it's spreading misinformation and it highlights how much of a hypocrite they are because it's exactly what the flips and the capitalists do to make socialism look bad. This piece really highlights how accommodation can lead to a slippery slope towards bourgeois liberalism. Accommodation, not for the working class, but for the ruling class and for the ruling class's ideology. This is a perfect example of that slippery slope. Not only is Joe Sims attacking Gromsky here, he also attempts to distance himself from Lenin. Because in this section, he never actually attributes his support of this policy, despite the misattribution of it, to Lenin. He attributes it to other people supporting the policy. And so to skip ahead a bit, when he says, I am not a Marxist, is one thing that he really likes. Yeah, take that at face value. He's not a Marxist. He's attacking Lenin. He's attacking Gramsci. He's distancing himself from Lenin. And he's straight up admitting he's not a Marxist. I don't see how people can read this and think that the CPUSA is in any way anything other than a revisionist counter-revolutionary organization. The international and the Comintern meetings that were happening when there was a center for Moscow for that, for a house for that, I think that would be a good thing that we ought to really expand on because there is some strategic lessons we can learn about that, how it was when it wasn't in, in swing. It could be really strategically important for us to help us plan for the future, to try to bring that about again. Secondly, 1,000%, it's different for one to have different idea position, but then when we know that it's really dangerous because the person, for example, the leader who then acts on his position that's different from everyone else in the party, and that person already has a reputation, that is where I think there would be a strategic importance to talk about the idea that there should be in the future a way to remove that person when they are known to be taking action that which brought about the end of the Soviet Union. For a lot of people, especially like myself before interacting with the party for the past few months that I have been, it's hard to get your hands on Marxist in Marxist-Leninist literature itself. I have a very small collection and it was even smaller before I got the new members package. And a lot of the definitions or words that 
Marxist and Marxist use, I had a baseline understanding of, but nothing more than I could get a sentence definition of and nothing deeper than that, or the history behind the struggle that Marxist have gone through. And myself and a lot of comrades that I grew up around were set adrift for a long period of time because we never really had any leadership or aid. And a lot of people like this person predatorized it and guide us away from it. And it's good that we're talking about this so we can first identify it and help people learn the truth behind what they're being told. And also why the PSMLS is so important, at least even for myself, is this is the first place where I've actually been able to talk with other Marxists and listen and learn and not just be on my own trying to put it all together. The CPUSA was class collaborationist. That's basically what I've got from continuing to read Joe Sims. This doesn't have a very good understanding of Marxism, not the base understanding that I've even formed. I'm very glad that I joined this organization. I highly recommend you get Lenin's three sources and three component parts of Marxism. It's a very good book for your library and it's only about 74 pages and Lenin explains almost his entire doctrine. He goes into Marx, he goes into the terminology, he does a lot of definitions of Marxist terminology and then he talks about the path forward. I want to thank everybody. This party is what it is only because of the people who are doing the work. We wouldn't have this party. This is everything the old party should be doing. And they're doing nothing, zero, with their $10 million budget a year. That's how much they have. They're sitting on that. And they do nothing with it. I wonder where they get it from. They own property. They own property <laughs> all across the country. In New York, they have an eight-story building on 23rd Street near 8th Avenue. And they rented it out to multinational corporations. And they get big butts. So when they cry that they need money, it's a joke. They don't need no money. You know what they need the money for? To pay the salaries of the sons and the daughters of the party leaders who work in the party offices with health benefits and a pension. Didn't you say they invested in Wall Street, in the stock oh, market? yeah. Everybody should know, since 1992, Esther Moreau was the treasurer at the time. They invest their money in Wall Street. This was during Clinton administration. And they said, there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, if you invest your money in Wall Street, why would you want to get rid of Wall Street? If you're making money from Wall Street, why would you want to get rid of it? You're indebted to capitalism. You don't want to get rid of capitalism if you're making bucks on it. It's ridiculous. What communist party would do that? Well, I got news for you. I did find one. And that is in China in 1949. They got rid of Wall Street in Shanghai when the red troops came in. They got rid of the stock market. And now they have it back again, the Chinese stock market. So the Chinese and 23rd Street in New York are invested in capitalism in one way or the other. Thank you. And I hope to see everybody next week. Thank you for listening to this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram. Join us on Discord. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes. <laughs>